On this week's podcast, we're going to talk about the gay gene really this time, I promise. Third time's the charm. We're also going to talk about if a stressed dad's sperm affects his baby's brain. 23andMe is back in the news. We've got some beta sandwich history. Let's do the show. Three, two, one. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the beta sandwich science podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 107, recorded on October 22nd, 2015. We have with us the regular gang today, sort of, generally the normally gang today. We have Christian Copley-Salem. Hello, Christian. Hello. What do you do for a living? Um, I stare at pieces of a woman's uterus. Oh, God. <laughs> Might be the first time he's ever said that. Yep. And Carolina Balkenbush, our registered dietitian and food blogger extraordinaire, carolinaskitchen.com. Hello, Miss Balkenbush. Hello. Uh, any new recipes? Yes, there's one on there. Two. Two recipes this week. What? I know. I think that's called procrastination. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting how some things become more important when you're trying to do other more important things. Well, what yummies do we need to uh, so do? True. We need to cook up on there. I know, right? Uh, there's a really good cracker recipe on there. I'd never made crackers before, but uh, they're delicious. My, like my mom making them from scratch. Yes. Oh. Yeah, my mom hates crackers, and she tried, and she said it was the best. Isn't it just flour and water, basically? Pretty much, but these are a little bit more fancy. There are a few okay. other ingredients in there. They're and what else? Do, what else is on there? Um, and cake batter oatmeal, my favorite. My goodness, I've never even heard of that before. So uh, I will definitely be trying that. Well, enjoy. Let me know what you think of it. Hope you guys check it out. Absolutely, absolutely. I am Scott Barnett. I am a PhD candidate in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Christian has the same title as me, even though he was being a little coy. Yeah, Scott's job is to sit around and stare at the uterus of guinea pigs. These days, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we'll make for a fun story another day. So, uh, I have an interesting update from last week. So remember how at the beginning of the show I talked about how Stephen Harper, the so Canada is going through an election cycle. Their prime minister, Stephen Harper, had been largely anti-scientific and was causing a lot of issues for Canadian scientists. And I said, don't vote for him. This is going to be a problem. If you happen to live in Canada, of course, don't vote for him. And uh, didn't think anything more of it. Well, it turns out he was ousted. He did not win. And as a matter of fact, in Canada, you don't vote for your prime minister. You vote for the party who elects the prime minister. That's so weird. The, the, yeah, right. <laughs> Those weirdos. The uh, That's a joke, Canada. <laughs> the, the whole uh, country. <laughs> <laughs> in case the whole in country case, was offended at once. <laughs> so uh, another guy, I believe, is Justin Trudeau, I think was his name. Someone else's party won, and he's going to be a uh, prime minister. So that is done and done and great. But what is hilarious, do you guys know who John Oliver is? He's a former uh, Daily Show kind of segment host, was and he then the, he got his own show on HBO. Was his the show where he started a religion? Yes. Okay, yes. yes. It, he's yeah, hilarious. It's, it's called uh, Last Week today i think on hbo i actually watch it every week uh, and it's hilarious he's absolutely just a a brilliant individual well on his show this very last week a few days after we recorded he brought up an interesting fact that i did not know and i don't know how it's enforced which is he was also going off in stephen harper saying that he should not be elected president or president prime minister and he quoted a canadian law that says i quote no person who does not reside in canada shall induce electors to 
vote for or refrain from voting for a particular candidate, i.e., Foreigners aren't allowed to tell us who to vote for, or you could have a $5,000 fine and or six months in jail for trying to tell their prime minister who who to vote for their prime minister, which is weird in a couple ways. So he made a big funny joke about it, and he started throwing Canadian money all over the place, says, take my money, I don't care. I don't have the luxury of that. <laughs> Having said that, I don't know how that could be enforced. You know, if a Middle Eastern country has Sharia law, they can't arrest me in America for doing that. We kind of have our own laws and our own protection of our citizens. The only way I feel like this could be enforced is that if, if they put me on some sort of list that said I'm a violator of their law, and if I ever went to visit Canada, they would just swoop me up at the border and throw me in jail or charge me $5,000 fine. That's the only thing I can imagine. So you just kind of a weird law. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so uh, anyways, that's hilarious. So technically I violated Canadian law last week and I may be subject to a multi-thousand dollar fine or six months in jail. Are so, you going uh, to Montreal? Oh, I am supposed to go to Montreal. Oh, that's the funniest thing ever. I'm supposed to go to a conference. Well, I guess we'll find out next year. Yeah, that is the funniest thing I've ever heard. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, well, well, we'll certainly test that theory out. I have the. Uh, I'm going to put a link to the John Oliver piece on Canada and 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 their their. I guess now to be soon to be former prime minister Stephen Harper it is a brilliant little piece and you should definitely check it out there so uh, I also I one last thing I'll say uh, before I move on a little bit I had a busy week last weekend I think Christian knows this or maybe not I don't I went and saw Ira Glass Ira Glass is very famous he's probably the most famous broadcaster in the country right now he's famous for This American Life on NPR and he's doing a tour of the country and he speaks about you know, his uh, experience with This American Life and NPR and, and broadcasting in general is a really, really interesting piece. Well, as part of a birthday present to me, I was given a VIP pass to go to a kind of a limited party where there were maybe 30 or 40 people and you got a chance to take your picture, a selfie with him, talk to him for a couple minutes and and it was a super cool thing and he, I was telling him about my research. He's, I'm like, hey, I'm a grad student at the university and and I've always been an admirer of your work. I just wanted to introduce myself and he goes, well, what do you study? You know, he does the natural leading question and he, uh, I'm explaining how we study preterm labor and he goes, well, geez, I thought you'd have to do that at the hospital. I don't know how you do that in the lab. And I go, interesting. You should say that we take a piece of the woman's uterus with their permission and we take it back to the lab and we have a little organ bath and I'm explaining the organ bath and I'm doing little diagrams with my fingers, explaining how you can measure the tension of the uterus contracting. And he has this look of complete and total horror on his face. <laughs> and someone was taking a few photos for me with my camera. Unfortunately, most of them, the flash wasn't on, but you can still make out the look of abject horror on his face of my <laughs> God, people do this sort of thing. Total like awesome. Dr. Frank Frankenstein type look, and I will uh, I'll put that on the on the website too. It's absolutely hilarious to see his face there. Face there. So, and the last thing I'll say about Ira Glass is, remember just last week or a couple weeks ago, I was talking about how my tick of doing that little yep. that little noise and how it's been driving me nuts, and I'm trying to do it. True story. Ira Glass does the same thing, and he must have done it 250 times during his hour and a half talk. So I feel completely vindicated <laughs> from that, which it generally suggests that it's the content that's much more important than the little ticks or how you sound. Unfortunately, his content is its content is way more compelling and interesting than anything I do, but at least the tick isn't going to hold me back in the future. True that. That's awesome. True that. So... And that concludes well. today's episode of How Scott's Week Was Better Than Ours. <laughs> <laughs>
So, uh, Christian's got a big thing tonight. Why don't you tell us about that real quick, Christian? Oh, God. Um, okay, <laughs> real quick. Um, I have, I went back to school at 30 to get a degree, decided to quit my job of 17 years and get a PhD and cut my salary in half and blah, blah, blah. That's where I am now. If we took all of the tension and stress and terror and drama that I experienced during all of that time and decision making and added it all up, I would be about half as terrified as I am right now of, for the first time in my life, getting on stage and playing guitar in front of people I don't know. So I, yeah, I'm scared. Which I find wildly amusing and indicative of just the human experience as a whole in that you are not a wallflower. You will argue with any random person at any given point uh, for the sake of it, just because you enjoy doing it. You have no problem getting in front of a group of a couple hundred people and talking about your research. No, I'm a public speaking guy. Like I can just jump up on a stage. I will push other people off the stage to get the attention on me. What really surprises me is that not more of that has spilt over into a collective, I can be in front of people, you know, uh, mindset so that you, this is not nearly as terrifying as it is for you. Everybody knows the terror of getting up and speaking. So even if you're a, if you're great at it, the first few times I did it, it was absolutely terrifying. And everybody kind of has an intuitive sense of what it would be like if they had to get up there and talk. So there's a, a small level of empathy. But non-musicians are the most judgy people of, of musicians on stage that I have ever met. It boggles my mind how judgy other people are. People who can't do that, even at the pathetic level that I'm pretending to do it at. So when you get up there and you talk, there's a certain level of empathy that you can grab onto from the audience. When you do play a musical instrument, people are judging the crap out of you, and they have no mercy. So it, <laughs> you've clearly you've clearly been on YouTube before, then. That's <laughs> that's it, yeah. Ninety four percent of YouTube are people telling you how horrible you are terrible. at whatever it is you're trying to do musically. Yeah. It, yeah. Yes. They're ridiculously judgy. So moving on. <laughs> how, All right. Real quick. Christian, how do you, do you know these songs really well? Yeah, they're not. It, it isn't a matter of the songs themselves being complicated. It's not like we picked, you know, a Bach concerto or something and I have to pull it off with the guitar behind my back. But the the idea that I have to keep track of what everyone else is doing. This isn't even a like a regular regular thing. This is a live open mic session with my guitar teacher as sort of the leader, quote unquote. So. It, they could go any direction they want and you have to be a good enough musician to figure that out and I'm not remotely that confident and he's like why don't you take a solo in the middle of the song oh that means <laughs> I have to track the chord changes underneath what I'm terrified of doing which is soloing so I'm soloing and trying to keep track of the chord changes that they're doing and they may change their mind and then I have to jump back in after that and I mean there's a whole host of complicated technical issues that go into making something simple sound simple well, and have you found that uh, – sorry, go ahead, Caroline. I was just going to say, well, according to the Yerkes Dodson Law, you're going to do great, Christian, because you have practiced and you know this, and being in front of an audience is just going to improve your peak performance. You're going to do great. I, I, to be honest with you, I am enjoying the fact that it terrifies me, and I hope that it makes, <laughs> it makes me a better guitar player and a better person and and makes me less terrified in the future because I may do this almost every Thursday going into the future. So we'll see. Oh, that's awesome. There you go. So uh, the only thing I'll leave you with is the fact that 
people love to do the thing which is supposed to calm you and it's the only one of the few things that could never calm you which is they tell you don't relax you're going to do fine and it's has that ever made anyone feel better about whatever stage performance are about to do in the history of all humans it has never made you feel the tiniest bit better about going on there so stop saying it people yeah the response is the lead singer of rush who has now played music for 40 years gets nervous before he goes on stage i have no chance (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, break a leg, Christian. I'm sure you'll do fine. Awesome. Hopefully you'll be there. Anyway. <laughs> You're going to do awesome. Uh, okay. Oh, man. We're really blowing our intro. <laughs> I'm going to get emails about this. Carolina, what do we need to do then? We How need, do we fix it? We need to blast some science. Science blast. I'm science blast. Pew. Pew. I did it. If no. I need it, you guys have to pew back. Oh, how dare you, ma'am. You, you never. <laughs> I lead most of the time, and you're always the last to the pew no, party. No, I am the first pewer. She is the pew. <laughs> Much of the time. Yeah. She is a pew expert. <laughs> to our amusement. So, I've tried getting this story out the last three times. I know I, I sucked up a lot of the intro here, but I have to do it, because I'm going to lose my mind if I don't get to do this story. And it applies to Christian. He has to be here, so we will push forward with it here. That's Christian, to me. <laughs> it applies to you because you are a homosexual. Oh, I thought it was because I was a researcher. Damn it. <laughs> and a researcher. So, as you know, everyone knows that the gay gene exists, right? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, the gay gene probably doesn't exist, and I've got evidence to support that a little bit later on, that it does not exist. But it is a very hot-button topic, and a lot of studies have showed that it revealed nothing. There is no gay gene, so how the heck, if there is a genetic component, do some people be gay and some people not be gay here? Well, someone else has taken a stab at this question, where thousands of others have tried before. Geneticist Eric Villane at UCLA, nice university, and his colleagues looked at something different. Rather than looking at genes themselves, they looked at epigenetic markers. These researchers, they collected DNA samples and saliva from 37 pairs of identical twins in which only one of the twins was gay, and then 10 pairs of twins where both were gay, and they scanned their epigenomes. So epigenetics, epa is above the genome, and and when we talk about epi, it is traits that can be inherited uh, and that are not directly related to your, your genome, and they can also be acquired or activated throughout your life and they would never be read within your within your actual genome here. And what it typically comes down to is a couple different things here. It's either histone modifications. If you remember histones, they're the spaghetti meatballs that your your DNA wraps itself around. You know, you've got 46 individual chromosomes in your in your nucleus and they're not just all floating around willy-nilly in these big long bundles. They are tightly wrapped up and if you're not using a gene it will be uh, what is the the histone itself can be methylated, and that will cause the gene itself, the DNA, to wrap very tightly around the histone, and so that the 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 elements that come in to transcribe that DNA just can't get to the DNA itself here. Conversely, it can be acetylated your histones, and that will cause it to unravel from the meatball, and it will cause that gene to be more expressed because all those components can get to it here. So let's, let's be like let's be a little picky here, just for detail's sake. Yes. Um, it they have shown that there is a component of heritability to this epigenetic phenomenon. However, it isn't something that once set. If you get it from your dad or your mother, your daughter or 
whoever will have it and so on and so on have it. These things are actually flexible and fade out over time or are re- rewired or reinforced over time. Or reinforced they can be depending either. on your lifestyle or your genetic lifestyle, like eating chicken or whatever. But I mean, things can influence your genetics through this epigenetic me- mechanism and pass that on to your children, but it may not go to their children. Uh, that is true. It is a it is a fluid modification to the outside components of your your genome that could be reinforced through activity for a very long time into the next generation, or it can, yeah, like you said, go away with time. Absolutely. The DNA itself can also be methylated. This is an epigenetic thing here, just not the histones. Just for posterity, I wanted to throw that in there. So, great, epigenetics, they wanted to look at that rather than the genes itself here. And what they found were five epigenetic markers that were more common among the gay men than their genetically identical straight brothers and an algorithm that they developed was based on five epigenetic markers that could correctly predict sexual <laughs> you're going to jump on this question it could pre- it could uh correctly predict sexual orientation in 60% of the 67% of the time here so and they didn't give a confidence interval there so i don't know if that's 1% confidence interval or whatever the case may be but let's just say it's a 100% confidence interval that's two thirds of the time it's certainly better than 50-50 but it's not 90, it's not 80, you know? Well, that's actually, I almost want to say that that's impressive because if, let's let's be generous and say that the percentage of the population that has whatever gay marker gene thing or is gay is around 7%. I'm, I'm probably shooting a little high that some people say 10, some people say three. I think it's probably somewhere around six or seven, whatever. But it's a low enough percentage of the population that a test that's 90% accurate for it won't do better than about 70% because you have two probabilities playing into each other, which is why a positive AIDS test is like 30% likely to be true. Even if the test is 95%, there's so many people who don't have it that the odds of having it and getting a positive test are low compared to the odds of not having it and not getting a positive. Does that make sense? Right. Okay. So a 60% test on something that's 7% of the population means that their test is probably like maybe I'm guessing making numbers up, but kind of 80 to 90% accurate. Uh huh. So it's not actually as I'm actually going the other way. It's, it's not as bad as it may seem based on, the way those statistics actually work. Right. The only question here is if this 67% was only applied to this control group or this group here, I'm sure they had a control group too, mm-hmm. where you're not picking a gen, the general population, your mu is not part of part of the, the statistic here. You're only looking where you know you have positives to begin with. Does that make sense? Well, right. I mean, it- but you're, then you're skewing the data and that your data is not normal and it doesn't matter. But in a representative sample, which is what anything else that's reported, that prediction is useless. So yeah. unless they have a representative sample and they have a Gaussian distribution and they can say that their mean is roughly the same as the mean of the, the real population in the, on the planet, then them getting a 60% in that scenario is actually pretty good because of the Gaussian distribution. But that if they don't have that, then it's, it's worthless. 
Well, the other half of the validity of this test is something the authors themselves readily admit, which was that associations from uh, found in very small studies are prone to evaporate when tested in larger groups. That is true. Yes. Regression to the mean. Yes, exactly. Regression to the mean. Precisely right. And we have we had 37 pairs of twins and 10 percent and an additional 10 pair where they both were gay. So we're looking at 47 sets of twins, which in a population sense is is ridiculously small, especially when you're trying to identify these, these markers, these gen- and if you're trying to do GWAS studies or anything big like that, this will never right. fly. But it is an interesting initial experiment, and this is how science works. You start with a small population, you get data, then you move it to a bigger study because it shows promise, and then right. you see if the data upholds. You don't do something that like a news outlet would do and say, gay gene identified. Right. Ugh. You know? You just you say this is interesting. Let's look further into this here. Right. Let's hope. Let's see. Let's go ask another lab if they can replicate our data. You know. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, this is a good quote from uh, William Rice, who's an evolutionary geneticist. They said, or uh, excuse me, uh, he said, we already know there is no gay gene, and then, uh, if there was, it would have turned up in one of the massive studies that scanned the whole genome for variants shared between gay people. That has been done a lot. These these GWAS, these these giant array. Studies looking for single point mutation, single nucleotide polymorphisms, small mutations. Uh, you know uh, these these micro array, these micro islands. Excuse me. They're looking for a million different things that could be identified directly from the genome, and they're really showing no difference between the, a gay person's genome and a straight person's genome. So yeah, that's largely out as far as we can tell. But epigenetics is a very interesting place to look. Uh, well, who knows if it will be valid? Here's here's another way of thinking about that as well. Say you're looking for the difference between a straight person and a gay person's genome. Do you think that would be more or less different than an Asian and an African, someone from Africa? Do you think their genomes would be more different or less different than the gay gene? We can't tell by looking at the genome what race someone is. How in the world did we expect to find something more specific than that? Like the variance between genomes within a race is bigger than between races. There's literally no genetic marker for being Asian. We have no idea what genetically causes that to be. It, it, there isn't any difference. So I thought I was pretty sure there were there were there, there were are clusters of genes that could be used to identify you regionally. Maybe not so much from a country. Only but, on an evolutionary scale. Uh-huh. Like you can't tell the difference between someone who's dark skinned and light skinned because of their genome. We have absolutely right. no idea. Well, most of these gay gene comparison analyses were on X chromosomes. They really wanted to. They were on the sex chromosomes because they, I mean. Which that could be a swing and a miss by, you know, because females. It's kind of a logical. Too, yeah. so. And it's kind of a logical fallacy to, to, to suggest that it's only going, that a, a, someone's sexual proclivities could only be limited to the sex chromosome. That seems we're ridiculous. so much more complex than that, oh, yeah. you know. And just the so. idea that one gene could affect all of that also seems ridiculous to me. It seems like it, it, in reality it's going to be a pattern of genetic predisposition along with environmental influence that's going to generate a set of factors that will influence that that's well beyond the what you're going to get by doing a genetic screen or even an epigenetic screen. That's yeah. my opinion. So uh, well, we shall see, huh? I mean literally I just narrowed it down to everything in the universe. <laughs> it's either genetic or environment or both. Okay, so it's either something or something. <laughs> so good. Classic. For, yeah, keeping it real. <laughs> all right. So uh, that's all I have on that. So uh, keep uh, keep your 
we'll keep our thumb on the pulse of epigenetic gayness and we'll see if it sticks. <laughs> you can quote me on that. <laughs> I'm all about that gay epigenetic thing. <laughs> Good luck. So, uh, Carolina, you know you must segue in. I'm, this is I'm an gonna, easy one. Well, okay, because I'm, I'm being a little disappointed at people's segue, not you and as an individual, are <laughs> us as the group as a whole, our segues have been a little weak. Mine are terrible, and I love it. <laughs> well, speaking of epigenetics, there's another uh, epigenetics story that we had talked about a, a while ago. I think it was probably over a year ago. You guys remember the story about... Um, the mice, the father mice that were exposed to a smell and then shocked and then they passed on that fear. I absolutely remember that. And yep. it, it was a very, uh, the smell was something that was not, the the smell they'd never smelt before and it was not like rancid or anything. And they were able to, their offspring, when they smelt that, had a heightened sense of fear despite the fact of having no reason why they should, right? Right, exactly. Yep. They had never smelled it before. It was a neutral smell and they were for some reason afraid of it. Um, so this kind of uh, is related to that. Um, this is some research from PNAS, uh, the Proceedings of the <laughs> National... Our favorite journal, <laughs> PNAS. <laughs> um, and the, these are researchers at the University of Pennsylvania um, in the School of Veterinary Medicine. They, they were looking at how uh, stress in male rats could be could cause basically a dampened stress response in their offspring. Okay, so they had done some research in 2013 uh, showing that when uh, male rats were exposed to some kind of stress, like either having their cage changed or being exposed to a scent that they did associate with fear, like a, uh, the smell of, of like a predator's urine, fox's urine, um, then their offspring had a, a less pronounced response to stress. Um, which in and of itself, they said, wasn't really all that interesting. Um, so what they did is they compared the sperm um, from stressed fathers to not stressed fathers, and they found an increase in the expression of nine microRNAs um, in the stressed animals. So just to kind Your of... favorite topic, Christian. Yeah. So to kind of review from last week, okay, what are microRNAs, Christian? Favorite topic? Uh, microRNAs are short... RNA sequences somewhere between, I think, 18 and 22 to 24 base pairs. Um, they're, they're transcribed, but they're not translated, so they just float around as little pieces of RNA, and they stick to other RNAs the same way DNA sticks to itself. They form a helix, and they block the translation. Yeah, translation. They block the translation of that messenger RNA into a protein. So they can actually regulate um, protein levels in a cell by binding to messenger RNAs that complement them and basically knocking them down. Exactly. They basically mark them for destruction. So last yeah. week, so this is the miRNAs. And last week I talked a little bit about siRNAs, which are very, very similar. Do you know mm -hmm. the difference between the two? Um... You know, dicer isn't it's isn't it a lot of how they're made? You have a dicer complex with miRNAs that split it up. Yeah, I don't know. They're I know that really, really, really similar because they they're both so. interfering RNAs. Um, but typically, almost all siRNAs, um, regardless of their origin, whether they're viral or or not, they um, they silence the same locus from which they were derived. Whereas most miRNAs don't silence their own loci, but other genes. 
hmm. instead, effectively. So that's, that's something I didn't know until today. I just cool. kind of thought of them as synonymous. But anyway, so these stressed animals had um, an, express, uh, an increased level of expression of nine specific MIRNAs, um, which they said wasn't really all that interesting either. So what they did is they took some mouse zygotes and they injected them with these nine microRNAs to see what would happen and then implanted them into normal female mice who carried them as surrogates. Um, and then for the control groups, the zygotes either received just a sham of an injection or an injection with just one single uh, microRNA. And so once the offspring became adults, the researchers looked at their response to stress as they did in their previous study in 2013, and they found that the ones who were injected with the nine microRNAs had the same um, basically type of behavior, a dampened response to stress. Um, they showed they had uh, lower cortisone levels compared to offspring in the control groups, and they had changes in the expression of lots of genes in their paraventricular nucleus, which is a part of the brain that um, directs stress regulation. PVN! PVN. Um, so very, very interesting. Uh, they also looked at um, how exactly this was happening. So uh, the, the microRNAs are, are known to degrade um, mRNA, of course, the messenger RNA. Um, and so they looked at stored maternal mRNA, which is a genetic bundle that's in the egg. Um, and it's only there very, very briefly after the egg um, fuses with sperm, uh, but it's thought to direct early zygote uh, development. And so what they did is they did a separate experiment with the same kind of injection of these microRNAs, and then they amplified the RNA um, in the zygotes after only eight hours of um, being incubated. And they basically saw that the, uh, the microRNAs were attacking the maternal mRNA. And specifically, they were silencing, effectively silencing genes that are involved in chromatin remodeling. So then there's, after that, there's a little bit of speculation. Mm -hmm. The researchers are basically thinking that possibly what's happening is the, the stressed mice are um, releasing microRNAs that are contained in the exosomes from in their epithelial cells that line the epididymis, um, basically into uh, the semen and that's somehow getting absorbed into the sperm and that is somehow getting incorporated into the maturing sperm which is just kind of a crazy speculation I don't really know how likely that is um, they didn't study that part of it but yeah. kind of cool that they looked so far into what exactly was happening with this epigenetic type change it's very interesting awesome the end <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting. I didn't bring a story, but I have things to say this podcast, so yay. Um, there's a there's a recent set of papers, I don't know how recent, within the last like three or four years, but that has started working on microRNA sponges where they inject these plasmids that suck up a whole bunch of different microRNAs and actually bind to them and pull them out of service so they can look at what effects they're having and what changes so, it's kind of cool. Yeah. M-I-R-N-A yeah. sponge. Yep. Sponge. They've well, cool. Thanks, Carolina. Of course. So, are we going to play a little bash, or are we going to save the bash? Oh, we're going to play some bash. Christian <laughs> has 10 minutes, according to his schedule. I here. do. And we will do this here before he gets to go get his rock on. And Scott so shows that, up to support me, eh? 
I am showing up. I will be there, friend. Awesome. As long as you don't get on at 10, I will be there. Yep. I will be there at 9. So Sweet. play early and play often. Sweet. Okay. <laughs> With that being said, we need to move on to our favorite game, Bash! Hooray! Do we have a noise to... for Bash? Oh, I know we recorded a noise. <laughs> we, we have a, a really nice sound effect that theoretically. Well, all just the people played. just heard it because it's just right. like. So oh, sorry, guys. Now. We're not actually hearing it right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're seeing behind the curtain of Oz. <laughs> so, on this week, we're going to talk about diseases and DNA and all the fun stuff we like to talk about. And if you are new to the show, very quickly, we have three science discoveries. Our host, and you hopefully playing along at home, will put them in the order in which they happened, and you will also tell me a year, so of course we can make fun of you when you're horribly off. <laughs> With that being said, uh, two of these people, I'm not going to tell you, I, I'm going to leave out all their people's names, because two of them are very famous, and I don't want that to hint you in on the year it may have been done, okay? So the first one is going to be, in this year... DNA polymerase enzymes were discovered. So the enzymes that replicate your DNA, which are very important to life and living, were discovered. All right. The next one is this individual published a paper describing penicillin and its effect on gram-positive microorganisms. It was a seminal paper. That changed how we did business in a certain kind of way. Keep that in mind. So wait. Gram-positive microorganism. Say that again? Penicillin kills gram-positive? A paper describing penicillin and its effect on gram-positive microorganisms. Okay? Okay. This last one, this individual developed a method of attenuating a, a virulent pathogen, the agent of chicken cholera, so it would immunize it would immunize and not cause disease. In other words, this person figured out a way to use the disease to prevent chicken cholera from forming. So again, your three options are when were DNA polymerase is discovered? When was a paper published about how penicillin has an effect on gram positive microorganisms? And when did someone figure out Oh, and for super bonus points, if you guys can tell me either of those individuals in the last two, you just win because you're awesome. No. Uh, Why do you make up rules? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's my game. I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> keep it straightforward. And then the last one is uh, is is figuring out that if you do something to chicken cholera and you inject it into other chickens, they don't get chicken cholera anymore. So I'm going to roll my random dice here and just say, Carolina, I want you to go first with the one that is furthest back in history. Um, okay. I'm going to go with the chicken cholera first. Okay. So, uh, and the year. Uh, uh, 1900. 1900. Okay. So why why that instead of penicillin and DNA polymerase? I'm just I don't I'm for some reason I'm thinking like pasteurization and I don't know. I, I'm okay. just going with it. Okay. <laughs> That's really okay. a stupid reason. I'm just going with that. So uh Christian, which is going to be your first one? Uh I'm going to say the penicillin. The penicillin one there. Okay. Uh, when this paper was published and uh, a year throwing that out there? Uh I'm going to say oh god. 
1890. And and what was yours, Carolina? Uh, for 1900, right? Yes, yes. Okay, great. Okay, so we both had that out of the way. And your second one would be in the order, please, Carolina? Uh, penicillin. So you're going to go penicillin. Yep. Okay, and does, are you going with... Uh, you going with chicken pathogen or are you going with DNA polymerase, Christian? Chicken. Chicken. So you guys just flip-flop your first one. You both agree that DNA polymerases were discovered last. That's my suspicion. And what year would you say the DNA polymerases? Wait, but we haven't given you a year for penicillin yet. Yeah, who cares? I say 1950. It, I remember it being ridiculously recent. And okay. From some, for penicillin? No, for DNA polymerase. What do you was, think for DNA polymerase, Carolina? Uh, I think it's going to be a little after DNA. So I'm going to say... You mean the Watson-Crick DNA Yeah, thing? I'm okay. going to say 1960. Well, you both got the last one right. Sweet. And Christian, did you say 1950? 50, yeah. Okay. So it's a wash because it was... Uh, uh, you were both right, except... The year was 2006. Gosh. I'm, I'm just kidding. It was 1955. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, oh, that's center. I learned it in school before then. <laughs> <laughs> so it, 1960, 1950 was 1955. Nice. I don't feel like breaking a calendar out to figure out who is that accurate, oh, but gotcha. you both are there. But there is a definitive winner this time because you both did not pick the same thing. Correct. And it's funny because Caroline even used a word that would suggest she knew who the individual was. Um... Do you remember what that word was? No. <laughs> <laughs> so the oldest one is 1880, and that was the development of an attenuating virulent pathogen to be used to prevent cholera. Damn. That was Louis Pasteur. And you'd yeah. mentioned the word pasteurization. So I'm <laughs> like, ooh, she kind of wow. almost got it right there. Did not uh, know that. <laughs> yeah. And you did. I, it was clear you weren't making the connection when we were going about it. You're like, I just something about pasteurization. I don't know. Like, But if it was Jeopardy and we wrote pasteurization you probably would have got it what right what year so. was that 1880 man i was i had 1890 for the penicillin which is so close it's like i had just the names flipped <laughs> right but the penicillin one now you have to think contextually when did we first get penicillin in large doses uh world war ii world war ii absolutely mm -hmm. correct he published his paper in 1929, and it was it was it was just coming into major uh, popularity around World War II, and it say it was without a doubt saved millions of lives during the war. I guess 1925 uh, for life. the chicken cholera thing. Uh -huh. so my dates were were spot on, but I just had those two names were but just totally wrong yeah. at the same time. Right. <laughs> so there you have it. Awesome. And okay, and now I feel. Christian, you should know who that was. I feel like you should know. Who did the, what? Did what? Who did the penicillin? Who's famous for penicillin? Oh, I have no idea. Alexander Fleming. Fleming. Mm. Fleming. He did both. He discovered it and. Uh, I think. Well, I. I, I I'm <laughs> look like a historian. <laughs> I don't know. You were kind of floating it around. There, He's like. the one who's famous for it. I think it's one of those weird stories where, like, he was a postdoc and. And, or he was the main doctor and actually like some undergraduates figured it out and he took all the there was something really weird it's very controversial about the whole thing but he gotcha. he's the one who gets the credit so he lives on in history while nobody else does Good time. that's our beta sandwich science history game so can we say that Carolina is the winner winner chicken cholera dinner <laughs> <laughs> is that how that works I, was, I hope you play better than you 
play guitar better than you pun. Oh no, that pun was gold. <laughs> that was pretty All right. good. So My let's go to the scoreboard, people. Giving me a disapproval shake now from that pun. <laughs> I got zero points. For Carolina that. has played six times and she has won four. Does Ow. anyone know what that ratio would be? Four to six. <laughs> <laughs> Two to Someone three. hasn't learned no lowest common denominator. Two to three? She, like, <laughs> Carolina's won two-thirds of the game she's played. Christian. Zero, I think. Has won zero. You played three and you've won zero. Yes. I've played two and I've won one. Nice. Never mind the fact that <laughs> nobody else is playing against me. <laughs> but, oh, wow. <laughs> hey, it's not my fault. <laughs> Good for statistics. All righty. Carolina, can you take us home? Uh, not as well as Dell, but thanks for listening, guys. Um, share the podcast with your friends. Review us on iTunes. Uh, I'm allowed to say it. Even you Scott's are allowed not. to it, and you should say it every time. <laughs> Please do. We really love week. reviews. We love emails from you guys, suggestions, as long as they're positive. Um, God, you're learning. Yeah, you're forcing them to be positive. <laughs> So thanks, guys. Till next week. All right. Peace Peace out. There was nothing awkward about that ending at all. Really? (laughs) We're still going. We could make it awkward. Uh, 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 uh. Okay.